Hello and welcome to Statistically Interesting, the podcast where we interview analysts and data scientists to find out about the fascinating work that they do and how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Jake Stein. I'm co-founder of RJ Metrics. You can find out more about me and find out about new episodes by following me on Twitter, at Jake Stein. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I spoke with the data scientist at RJ Metrics, Yevgeny Slutsky-Meyer. Yevgeny tells us about Fly's sense of smell, the differences between doing data science in academia versus the business world, and some interesting work he's doing on classification and attribution algorithms. I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, Evgeny, uh, if you're talking to someone who is not very technical or not very familiar with your industry, how do you describe to them what you do? Um, hi, Jake. Uh, great question. Um, I guess in general, I describe data science as just applying scientific principles to uncover uh, insights from raw data. Um, I think that's the probably the broadest definition of data science that you could come across. Uh, but of course, at many different companies, it can mean different things. And so specifically, uh, at RJ Metrics in your role today, um, can you take me through like a typical day? What, what sorts of things do you focus on? Uh, sure. Uh, one thing that I really like about RJ Metrics is that my day-to-day work uh, varies significantly. Uh, it's really exciting to be uh, in a startup environment and uh, you know, I could be working on a small project uh, supporting um, some sort of business analytics that we're trying to push out at the moment, trying to figure out you know, what is the best way to optimize um, RJ Metrics performance. Um, but uh, there are also more involved projects uh, where we uh, build actual um, attribution models um, uh, be it for people, contacts, um, uh, or uh, you know, uh, something for an internal product, um, and also uh, uh, classification tools, classification models. So it's really um, looking at data, um, trying to make sense of it, um, and trying to come up with models that could describe it well um, and uh, generate uh, new insights and optimize business performance. That, that all makes sense and super interesting. I, I want to double click on one of the things that you just said, the, the classification models. C- could you talk a little bit more about, maybe for, for those of us who aren't super familiar with class, classification models in general, what exactly does that mean and what's the, the application for, for your job? Uh, sure, so uh, in general, uh, you know, given uh, data you're trying to classify certain data points as belonging to particular classes and uh, the applications can uh, vary uh, significantly, but um, you are trying to look at the world, trying to look at the training set that you have, that you know to be true, um, and uh, you are trying to train a model to be able to predict new data. So it's really looking at predictive analytics and trying to classify new data um, as it comes in into um, two, three, four, however many classes you may have. And how do you how do you use that? Like, what's like the, uh, a recent example of a classification problem that you were you were trying to solve? Um, so a recent example uh, would be trying to classify potential prospects into particular personas. So uh, one of the um, most interesting. Uh, 
what, what, one of the more difficult problems I think for many startups to solve is to find particular personas that they would like to pitch their product to. Um, and so Rdmetrics recently released um, a new product and it's targeted towards a very particular persona. And we are um, essentially trying to classify people um, and be able to tell whether they belong to a particular persona class. For example, you know, other data analysts, other data scientists, um, uh, what kind of role do they play um, in a particular business? Um, and so you can use um, several features uh, that we know about these people to be able to predict with um, a certain degree of certainty whether they belong to a person class A or a person class B. Very cool. Uh, how long have you been working on that problem for? Um, I have been working on it for um, several weeks now. Um, it is still in the works. Uh, that's one of the challenges of being a data scientist, uh, being able to juggle many projects um, at once. Um, but uh, typically, uh, you know, projects projects of this kind take a little bit more time than uh, just uh, trying to write a SQL query and um, see uh, what the recent uh, KPIs show you. Right, right. And, and how long have you been in your current role for? Um, I have been at Argymetrics for nine months now. Um, I have been, however, doing data science for uh, quite a bit longer than that. Um, I. Uh, started doing data science in general sense uh, in grad school uh, while I was uh, recording data from uh, brains of fruit flies and uh, the challenges there were to um, get that data and really make sense of it, try to understand what it is uh, and try to build models that would allow us to explain that data and uh, predict future responses of the brain to uh, particular stimuli. So um, that I have been doing for, uh, you know, I have been doing that for almost seven years uh, before joining RJ Metrics. Um, and uh, so I would say I have been practicing data science for uh, almost eight years now. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I feel like I have to ask more about the fruit fly brains. Um, what, what sorts of stimuli were you giving them? What, what sorts of outputs did you see? I'd love to just understand more about that. Uh, sure. Uh, at Columbia, uh, I was... Uh, Lucky to be a part of uh, a group called the Binet Group, um, and uh, the idea behind the group was to uh, really bring in new tools from uh, mathematics, electrical engineering, um, uh, into the world of neuroscience. Um, and we were studying olfactory systems, so uh, we're studying the sense of smell um, in fruit flies, um, and we're really trying to understand how information about um, analog signals about uh, chemicals present in the environment, uh, how this information is encoded um, by the brain. Uh, so we're looking at the uh, very initial stages of processing, starting with the nose um, of fruit flies, if you will. Um, we were taking recordings from olfactory sensory neurons, uh, which, is, which are located in the very first layer of the olfactory system. And they're really responsible for uh, picking up uh, tiny amounts of uh, odorant molecules in the environment and translating information about um, these molecules into electrical impulses that are transmitted to the rest of the brain. Um, and it is still very much not understood exactly uh, what is it about the odorants uh, that is being uh, encoded and sent to the rest of the brain and how the rest of the brain processes it. So the stimuli we would deliver 
um, you know, wouldn't be particularly exotic because we want to have great control over our experiments. Um, but you know, they would include things like acetone and ethyl acetate, uh, very simple um, orderings. Um, a couple of times also involved uh, vinegar and banana because uh, fruit flies are very much attracted to uh, the smell of vinegar. Um, and uh, we just wanted to um, design precise experiments uh, so that we can measure the stimulus that we deliver and we can measure how neurons respond to the stimuli. And based on uh, the input stimulus and the response, uh, we would uh, build a model that would uh, tell us, give us, provide us an insight with what is it that is being encoded by the brain. Hmm. And, and did you get to the point, either in your research or other research that, that you're aware of, can we now predict like what will be stored in the brain based on if there's the smell of vinegar versus the smell of, of something else? Uh, I think uh, when it comes to what will be stored in the brain is still very much a question that is up for grabs uh, because it involves memory and at present we know very little about memory and what exactly is being stored. Uh, but we did find out what is uh, important uh, to the brain, whether it is stored or whether it is required for immediate action by a fruit fly, um, I think is uh, still speculative. Uh, but we did find out that um, it's not really the amount of the order or the concentration of an order that is encoded by the, at least the early olfactory system but how quickly um, that amount is changing. And uh, that may sound like a very simple result, um, but it was in many ways um, groundbreaking because it wasn't known within the community that fruit flies were looking at how quickly information about orange is changing. And it was certainly not known that they were doing this at the very first level of neurons uh, in the nervous system. Oh, wow. So it doesn't even have to get to the brain for them to, to basically process that information. That happens effectively in their nose. That, that's right. It, it, it happens wow. with, a very first, with a very first layer of neurons, and it's incredibly sophisticated processing because a single neuron uh, would essentially tell you how quickly the odorant is changing. Um, and if, you know, it, when we found that out, that was mind-boggling to me because if you can have that kind of processing, and, and that's a very simple model of what the... Uh, first layer of neurons is doing. Uh, if you can have that kind of processing on the very first layer, just imagine what you can do with millions and hundreds of millions of these cells in the entire brain. Wow, that is extremely cool. Um, and, and do you know if, if there, that has been like reproduced in other model animals, like for mice or, or anything else? Um, it has been reproduced uh, in other insects. Um, okay. It also has been confirmed in uh, fruit fly larvae. Uh, which have a very different olfactory system because uh, it's uh, not as sophisticated as that of fruit flies. Um, but people have seen uh, this um, uh, encoding of uh, gradient encoding or looking at how quickly concentration is changing um, in, um, um, in larva and also uh, in sea uh, elegans and a few other insects. It's a little bit harder with mice because mice breathe. So mm -hmm. when you think about air passing through the nasal cavity, it's actually very hard to infer uh, what kind of signal is hitting uh, receptors in the nose. Um, fruit flies don't breathe, so we can control the stimuli very precisely and can get that level of insight. I, I think my head is exploding a little bit. Uh, I never occurred to me that there would be an animal that does not breathe. 
so the, the fruit flies just like get it by diffusion, just things through the air? Uh, essentially, there are pores uh, in the outer layer um, of the body, and oxygen does get into the system, but they don't have lungs. Um, and they don't actively breathe air in and out like mice do. I guess that makes sense. They don't actually have lungs. Wow. Okay. That's super cool. Uh, and it's the same for C. elegans, the worms, they, they, they don't breathe either? Right. Worms uh, don't really have lungs. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, that is not a fact I would have guessed I would have gotten interviewing a data scientist, but I'm very happy I got it. Um, super cool. Okay. So you've uh, clearly done some very interesting research. Um, you now had uh, experience on you know, the, the corporate side of, of data scientists and data analysis. Uh, if you could go back in time mm -hmm. and give some advice to your, let's say, 20-year-old self uh, in terms of your academic career and now your, your business career, uh, what, what would you tell yourself? Ah, that's a great question. Um, Thank you. You know, it's, it's really hard to do things uh, retrospectively. I, mm -hmm. I don't think I would change very much. I would still uh, go on to a PhD program because I, I think I learned a tremendous amount uh, that uh, is important when it comes to data analysis. Um, one of the most important things I learned was uh, questioning everything, uh, really questioning everything you see in data, where that data comes from, what might possibly influence uh, the data points uh, that you see. Um, and that skill takes quite a bit of time to develop. Um, what, I, what I would do differently is probably try to learn uh, a little bit more um, on the technical side of things. Um, mm. This is something that is certainly not um, emphasized um, in academia enough, I think. Uh, it certainly varies by discipline. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, data scientists coming from academia face. Um, it's, uh, it's not that people can't uh, necessarily learn these skills. Um, I think um, um, they, they can, but it, it does take quite a bit of time to learn how to work with databases, how to write code. And I was fortunate enough in my program to actually be writing uh, models and simulating models. So I was doing quite a bit of coding back then, but I wasn't necessarily familiar with uh, systems that are used um, in the business world. Um, and I think that's, uh, these are some of the systems, methods uh, that are emphasized in current uh, data science programs um, so that people um, you know, can really be productive on day one um, as a data scientist when they join an organization. Got it, that, that makes sense. And uh, if you had to pick the, the, the tool or the system that you, you wish you would have been more familiar with on day one, what would that be? Um, it would probably be the Python ecosystem. Uh, but I did do uh, a lot of work in MATLAB when I was a graduate student. Um, I did use Python uh, in later years. Uh, simply because we uh, were running simulations that were too expensive to run on a computer. So one of the problems mm -hmm. with MATLAB is that you have to pay for uh, a license to use it for every single CPU. Um, and um, in later years, we were actually using GPUs, graphical processing units, and um, in order to interact with that data, um, it's useful to know a little bit of Python. Um, and um, I, that's how I got into it, and uh, Python's just incredibly flexible, uh, language and uh, lately with uh, Jupyter, uh, you know, you can bring in so many different languages into a single notebook. Um, I still prefer to use Python, 
Um, but uh, you know, diving into that early on, I think, uh, would have been extremely helpful. That makes a ton of sense. And for for people who don't or aren't familiar with Jupiter, uh, could you explain what that is? Uh, sure, Jupiter is uh, is actually quite recent. Uh, the, the name that is, uh, it existed as um, IPython uh, for many years now. Um, and originally it was just a project to make uh, Python a little bit more um, interactive so that you could literally uh, uh, write code in your browser and uh, see the results. Um, and it was called IPython Notebook. You would create a notebook that allows you to write code and you can also leave comments um, as you write that code. Um, and you can share it with people and people can see it. Uh, GitHub uh, supports it now. Um, and I think uh, within the last year, uh, it was rebranded as Jupiter, um, which is just a short for Julia, uh, Python, and R, uh, Jupiter. Um, but it's a notebook uh, that, it's, it's, it's an interactive environment that allows you to uh, analyze data really in any language of your choice. And not only that, you can bring in packages from many different languages. So if there is a package from R, let's say ggplot2 that I want to use, I can simply import it inside that notebook, uh, write all of my code in Python, and then use the plotting library um, from R to plot my results. And you can uh, import other packages from Scala and um, uh, Julia, uh, any language you want. So it's an extremely powerful uh, analytics tool. Got it. And so one of the questions I was planning on asking, I think you probably already answered it, the, the single tool that you could not live without, would, would it be Jupyter? Uh, Python and Jupyter, yep. Python and Jupyter, yeah, okay, great. Um, related question, or maybe not related actually. Um, so when you think about the, the work that you've done in RJ Metrics, the work that you did in grad school, uh, all the analysis work you've done, I, I imagine that the, you know, the, the technical challenge may not correlate very highly with the level of impact uh, of of the analysis, like you may have actually had some easy wins that were very big, or some very challenging things that that didn't pan out. I'm curious when when you think about the the project or the analysis that had the highest ratio of value, however you define value, to the technical sophistication required. What do you think that would be specifically at RJ Metrics? Uh, or if you think that there's a better example from before RJ, that's okay too. Um, so I think. Something that I'm working on right now will have a big impact. Uh, okay. It also depends, I guess, how you define impact. Right. Uh, but uh, one of the things that brought me to RJ Metrics was that everybody was really excited about uh, generating insights and really letting data speak for itself. Uh, that's something that rang true with me because I tried to do that um, when I was in grad school. Uh, really, you know, look at data. Try to be as impartial as you can. Not make pretty charts. Let the data speak for itself and sharing with other people. And so uh, just a couple of days ago, um, I uh, started playing around with uh, a Chrome ex extension uh, that was built for Slack to uh, be able to share uh, data with the, um, with the team, with the rest of the team, with the rest of the organization. Um, and uh, full disclosure, the uh, Chrome extension wasn't written by me, but it did require quite a bit of tinkering to uh, be able to do uh, something a little bit more sophisticated so you could share actual uh, plots. Um, still working on it, um, ironing things out, but I would say that was the least amount of effort that I hope will have pretty big uh, changes at um, our geometrics and just how we talk about data and share it with the rest of the team. That's awesome. Is that, uh, is that by any chance going to be your hackathon project? Uh, 
Unfortunately, I will not be here for the hackathon project. Uh, for the hackathon, um, I uh, uh, have to be at a wedding, unfortunately. But um, yes, uh, it will get accomplished in the same time frame. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I think that we can still potentially have it be submitted for the hackathon. Uh, but that does sound super cool. Um, what about the the inverse of that question? The thing that was most challenging and required the most technical sophistication that ended up not having the the impact you hoped is it can you think of anything like that i can't think of anything specific but um i guess as a general theme uh, data scientists do spend a lot of time uh cleaning data mm -hmm. uh, but i certainly have experienced that over the last nine months uh at rj metrics i, I would say in the business setting uh, specifically but also in the in, in in grad school if that's the person's background um I think one of the most challenging things is dealing with uh, user-generated data, um, especially when you're looking at hundreds of millions or even billions of records. It, it is simply mind-boggling how many different ways, in how many different ways people can say the same thing. And so uh, this is related to the classification project we discussed before. You know, when you're trying to classify people in different classes and you're trying to define certain features, uh, just being able to um, identify these features and uh, see whether you know the person's trying to say the same thing or not requires uh, quite a bit of uh, data cleaning. Um, and there were certainly certain filters I implemented that weren't as impactful as I wanted them to be. Um, and um, I guess uh, you know you 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 learn as you go. But um, within the realm of data cleansing, um, I think. Some things oftentimes uh, don't uh, produce uh, as big of an effect as you, you, you want them to. That makes total sense. Uh, and, and could you talk a little bit about just like one of those filters or, or anything that in terms of how you exactly you dealt with all the different ways people could potentially um, gen uh, describe that data themselves? Uh, sure. Uh, there was a myriad of ways uh, dealing with misspelled data. Uh, the, one of the simple approaches uh, being the Levenstein distance. Um, and there were multiple metrics uh, that were created after Levenstein distance as well. Um, so we implemented it, and um, we were basically trying to filter out typos, missed spaces, uh, commas, periods, whatever have you. Um, and uh, in the end, we actually found out it was uh, a lot easier and more efficient to uh, write uh, regular uh, expressions uh, to capture all these mistakes. Um, so it was certainly a learning experience and it will uh, take a lot less time to implement a Levenstein uh, metric, uh, distance metric in the future. Um, but I guess that's just how it goes. Experience really does matter uh, when it comes to data science and being able to identify the right methods and tools to use. Cool, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I understand the high level what Levenstein distance is, but could you uh, just go into exactly how that's calculated or, or just roughly how it's calculated? Uh, roughly, it uh, simply looks at insertions and uh, deletions of characters uh, within a string, and uh, a metric is defined that penalizes uh, insertions and deletions, and uh, um, you look for um, a preferred score, um, essentially, uh, when you compare a word uh, to another word uh, to see if they're related. Got it, got it. And, and generally, um, when you think about like uh, data plumbing or data cleanup versus actual analysis, um, 
is there, you know, is it 50-50 between prepping the data and actually doing the analysis? Is it split one way or the other? How do you think about um, your time as it goes into those, uh, those different buckets? Um, so I think in, in, in general, the, the, or, well, it's not the rule. Uh, the fact is 80-20. I think um, a lot of time is spent on cleaning data. But again, it really depends on the data set uh, that mm. you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and also the sophistication of the analysis or the particular model uh, that you're building. Um, but with uh, user-generated data specifically, I think uh, one is bound to spend significantly more time uh, cleaning the data and preparing it for analysis. And that analysis might be very simple, but the bottom line is um, garbage in, garbage out. Um, if you have bad data going in, um, even if you have the most sophisticated analysis, um, it may not produce the results you want. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, what about hardware? Like, what do you when you're running these analyses? Uh, are you running it locally on your machine? Do you have some cloud up in AWS that you're using? Do you have dedicated machines somewhere? Like, where do you actually run this stuff? Um, so right now, most of the work that I do, um, I do on my uh, personal computer uh, and uh, a cloud infrastructure. Uh, so recently. Um, RJ Metrics has moved uh, its uh, entire ecosystem to Redshift, and uh, Redshift did open up um, a lot of uh, doors and really uh, let us analyze uh, data and aggregate data um, significantly faster. Um, and that was also one of the reasons we rolled out, um, or uh, RJ Metrics rolled out a new product uh, called uh, Pipeline um, that allows you to integrate many, many different sources uh, together. Um, and uh, be able to query them uh, very quickly. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, it's mostly uh, my laptop and um, AWS Redshift. Got it, got it. And uh, how big of a data set does it need to be before you decide, all right, this is not gonna go well on my laptop, let me dump this data into Redshift and analyze it there? Um, actually, it's, it doesn't depend so much on the data set, but the okay. complexity of the analysis. Uh, at the moment, uh, the things that you can do in Redshift are the things that you can do um, in any uh, uh, in in SQL in any SQL editor. Um, so uh, you you can query the data, but if you want uh, to build a machine learning algorithm, that is certainly uh, very difficult to do. It is possible now uh, with Amazon rolling out um, custom functions that you can run in Python, uh, but uh, with the enormous variety of packages that exist for Python and other languages, it is a lot easier to build these models um, on, uh, on your computer. Got it, got it. Uh, so when you think about um, all the different, I know you mentioned you have a lot of different projects going on at any given time. Is there anything that uh, is your responsibility now or the responsibility of someone else on your team that you wish you could just buy a tool that would solve that problem or outsource it to somebody else? There was one thing that I wanted to outsource and I think we, we found the solution for sure. that. Um, but it was, uh, it, it had to do with uh, scheduling uh, certain reports uh, to be run and uh, um, communicated to the right people. Uh, and. Uh, Mode has certainly helped us with that. Um, Mode Analytics, uh, you know, we're now able to hook up to any data that we have in pipeline. Um, write a SQL query once, uh, generate a report, and that report would be updated 
however often you want, every hour, every five hours, every day. Uh, and uh, with the plugin that I'm working on, uh, you know, you can instantly share that data, be it by email, uh, in Slack, or um, um, I guess by message, however, however you want it. But uh, the ability to um, schedule something, uh, schedule a repetitive task that would take you, you know, it might take five, 10 minutes, but it still requires uh, you dropping everything else and focusing on that um, uh, was certainly something I wanted to outsource. And I think we, uh, we solved that problem with Moat. That's awesome. Uh, and the, the inverse of that question, is there anything that we're uh, using a third party or a product for that you think it's just not, uh, we're probably gonna bring that in house at some point soon? Hmm. I feel like I would be disclosing too much information here. Okay, uh, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, nothing that I can disclose at the moment. Okay, that's fair. Um, cool. Uh, if uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's lots of different things that you're going to take on in the future in terms of new analyses, new questions to answer. Um, if you could pick one thing that you assume you'll get to later and just have that answer today or the analysis run today instantly, what would it be? In the business setting specifically or in general? Uh, ooh, well now my interest in peak. First in the business setting, and then I'm curious if there's <laughs> anything in general also. Um, I think one of, the, uh, one of the interesting questions that I wanted to spend my time on, um, and uh, I think one of the interesting questions for any startup really is figuring out when somebody will churn, when a client is likely to churn. Um, and I think that's an extremely hard uh, question to answer um, and uh, it would be pretty interesting to uh, have a model that would be able to just you know, predict it and tell us, hey, you should pay attention to this client. Some, you know, there's something going on. Um, I think it's extremely uh, difficult to build that. It's not even clear uh, you know, what uh, features one should look for. Um, and one is also uh, limited in terms of what kind of data uh, one can collect. So I think that would require quite a bit of experimentation and thinking about the problem, thinking about what data points to collect, and then, of course, building the model itself. Um, I think uh, that, that's just something that comes to mind immediately. Um, but, uh, you know, every single day I talk to colleagues and uh, other, other potential problems uh, pop into, uh, into my head. Uh, it's one of the exciting things about being at RG Metrics. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm very interested in the answer to that question, too. Uh, so let me know if you do happen to solve it instantaneously. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll do. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, in general, outside of the context of, of work, uh, are there other questions that you'd really love to, to have answered? I mean, there are, there, there are a lot of s smaller problems, I guess. Uh, it's, 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 I'm, I'm trying to go here for, for Jackpot, Jake. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have to like, solve world peace or hunger uh, in your analysis question if you don't want to. That's fair. I mean, I think in, in, in general, something that I'm personally interested in is uh, uh, bringing, uh, bringing together all the different um, health uh, data points that um, devices around us can, uh, can easily gather. Um, and, um, you know, iPhones and, and, and smartwatches and wearables um, in, in the near future will be able to generate enormous amounts of data that we frankly don't know how to analyze at the moment, but I think we can uh, 
easily predict when uh, somebody will, you know, if somebody is suffering from epilepsy, uh, we could predict an onset of a seizure, um, or um, you know, we could measure uh, glucose content from somebody perspiring, or uh, being able to measure the, from their mucous membrane if they're wearing contact. I think Google is actually working on on, on this problem, but. Uh, I think it will come down to collecting data from many different devices, many different sources, um, and uh, be able to improve the well-being uh, of a person and uh, alert them uh, if uh, we can tell that uh, you know, something bad is going to happen. I think the potential for that is enormous and can really improve the lives of so many people suffering from um, many, many conditions. Uh, I think we can definitely make this world a much uh, better place uh, with a little bit of data science. Yeah, I think that's, that's great and that's, that's inspiring. Um, when uh, outside of, of work in your day-to-day -day life, uh, do you find that you use any of the skills uh, from data science uh, just in, in your personal life? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I use them every time I read an article and somebody quotes numbers and uh, you know, I'm trying to make sense of these numbers and figure out that they're true or, or not. Uh, really do try to question everything. Uh, uh, I think in general it's a, it's a, it's a good skill. That's great. Uh, if, if your current job became unavailable for some reason, RJ Metrics uh, disappears, uh, what do you think you'd want to do? I sure hope that doesn't happen, Jake, uh, unless you have some inside information that I don't know uh, about. <laughs> pure, purely hypothetical. Purely hypothetical. Um, no, I think I would, I would still stay uh, you know, in the realm of uh, data science. There are a lot of exciting things uh, happening. Uh, so many new tools and methods and algorithms being developed uh, really on a daily basis. And uh, I just feel like there is so much to learn. And I think that that, that is one of the reasons um, people from academia are drawn to data science uh, because it does provide that stimulating environment uh, they used to from uh, grad school and uh, you know people continue being uh, learners uh, throughout their entire lifetime and uh, uh, there's definitely a lot to learn and um, you know uh, there, there are a lot of programs uh, but, you know even if I were not able to uh, secure a job uh, right away I would you know probably continue uh, uh, learning, uh, taking classes online, it's uh, so easy uh, to get that knowledge than it was you know, even five years ago. Uh, there are many outstanding courses uh, out there. Yeah, that's great. Um, anything that I haven't asked you about from either work or from academia or from outside work or data science in general that, that you think would be interesting to talk about? I mean, I personally am interesting, interested in the, you know, the intersection of technology, data science, our daily lives, and how it can affect us. But um, you did ask, uh, besides work, which does include uh, data science, uh, I, we could talk about my hobbies. I'm uh, very much, um, uh, uh, I, I do enjoy travel and photography um, a lot. Uh, one of the cool things that I enjoyed about uh, being in grad school uh, was that I uh, you know, traveled to, uh, uh, had an opportunity to travel to many, many places uh, across the globe. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
I guess uh, a part of me was always interested in how other um, cultures uh, see the world um, and how they interpret things. Um, and uh, even more specifically, um, I was always interested in how language uh, affects the way people think um, about things. Um, I don't know much about the, uh, the subject, but uh, uh, through my travels, um, I did see that, where I got the impression that the structure of the language, the grammar uh, of the language, uh, has an effect on um, reasoning, specifically logical reasoning. Um, and uh, it was sort of interesting to compare that uh, also when I was in college and studying German. Uh, Russian and German are uh, actually quite uh, related. Um, both have very um, sort of strict uh, grammar. Um, a lot of words in Russian come from German. Um, and I guess just the way you build sentences, the way you construct uh, your speech and present your speech, um, uh, also, I think, um, affects how you reason about problems. And it's very interesting to uh, talk to other people who come from other cultures and see an entirely different perspective when they discuss a certain problem. Um, and um, so, uh, in general, uh, I'm, I'm also interested in, uh, in you know, link, I guess, uh, I don't know if that's linguistics, but uh, traveling, uh, trying to see how other people view the world, uh, learning from them, um, and um, capturing that when possible with uh, with photos. That's super interesting. And, and do you, when you're uh, thinking about like a language like uh, German or Russian, which which has a much more strict grammar, um, d have you observed? people who, who's either native speakers of those languages, um, did they, how, how have you observed them to be different from native speakers of, of English or any other language? Um, so I think I might be biased in this, but uh, with certain people I observed they were very methodological when it came to you know, analyzing data or um, uh, presenting their ideas or, or interpreting uh, the results uh, that they see. Um, and, uh, you know, in German specifically, <laughs> of, you know, when you, I guess, uh, are, when, when you're building a sentence, uh, you know, in certain cases, the verb doesn't come in until the very end, or the part of the verb doesn't come in until the very end. So you have to, and maybe that's because I'm not a native speaker of German, but you have to think about how you will lay out uh, that sentence. And I think uh, there's something to be said about uh, you know, laying out your story when it comes to um, analyzing data as well and presenting it to other people. Hmm. That is really interesting. I, and I remember I, uh, I studied Spanish uh, in high school and college, and one thing that always struck me is that the, the pronunciation was always completely deterministic, where like in English there were, you know, rules and mm -hmm. then exceptions to the rules, and then you had to, you know, remember some funky thing because the word actually came from some other language. and. In Spanish, if you know how it's spelled, you with 100% certainty know how to pronounce that word. Um, and I thought that was, it was actually nice, um, but I could definitely see how the, the quirks of the grammar and the pronunciation and, and just how, how people talk uh, influence the way that they think. Because if you don't have a word for something, it's much harder to, or if you're, you have to do a certain thing or you don't have to do a certain thing. Absolutely. I, I also do like learning languages, and I think in general it's, it's, it's extremely beneficial to uh, uh, learn uh, 
learn spoken languages. You know, it, it activates so many different parts of your brain, and it also, uh, I think, uh, lets you connect with um, people better. Obviously, it's a lot easier w when you travel, but you're also able to understand people a little bit better as well. Um, so yeah, uh, really, uh, really bad at it and trying to learn languages uh, whenever I can. That's awesome. Um, super interesting. Evgeny, thanks again for, for taking the time and doing this interview. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, you're the inaugural guest, so you'll go down in history. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Uh, yeah, you're I, I appreciate the honor. Yeah, you should, you should feel honored. That is appropriate. Um, cool. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Statistically Interesting. This podcast is produced by me and Ryan Williams at RJ Metrics HQ, which is right across the street from City Hall in sunny Philadelphia. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.